Yang, thank you very much. I am extremely grateful to be part of this very remarkable collection of speakers today, interdisciplinary collection of speakers. And in a sense, we're coming full circle because in the very first talk, Robin Ball mentioned the profligate nature of simultaneity in special relativity. And that's in a sense what I want to talk about today. Julian Barber mentioned simultaneity on a number of occasions in his talk, and I think on one of his very first slides, he mentioned that he was in the job of actually salvaging absolute simultaneity away from the clutches of Einstein. Um, Nick Roberts mentioned in his delightful talk that sometimes playing this quartet is like a process of synchronizing clocks. And uh, we'll see at the end of this talk that it's just as well that the members of the quartet aren't in instantaneous different states of motion with respect to each other. Um, our last speaker very modestly limited himself to 20 minutes. Given that I'm speaking about simultaneity, maybe I should have said that I would speak merely for an instant. <laughs> you would be so lucky. <laughs> Funnily enough, the next slide was a slide that you've already seen. It was Einstein um, in his letter to his great friend's wife, his friend Michel Besso had died in 1955. It was the same year that Einstein died. And Einstein wrote to his wife saying, by, in, by way of solace, you know, we, we devout physicists don't really believe in the difference between past, present, and future. One may well ask how much solace this actually gave Madame Besso. But there is an interesting point here. And interestingly, Peter Coveney mentioned that the reason that Einstein didn't see any difference between past, present, and future was because the fundamental laws of physics are time reversal invariant. That's not the way I see it. He may well be right, but I'll come back at the end of my talk to Einstein and say what I think Einstein may have meant, other than the time reversibility of the laws of physics. Time comes with different aspects. We've seen this today. We've seen a, a plethora of aspects of time. Let's just think for the moment of, about clocks. Clocks have various functions. To start with, they're metronomes. They tick regularly. How we choose them and what we mean by an ideal clock is a very deep issue, and I completely agree with Julian Barber that Isaac Newton in the 17th century, early 18th century, had a much better understanding of what an ideal clock is, qua metronome, than Einstein himself, which is ironic when you consider the importance the clocks played in Einstein's famous 1905 paper on special relativity. But it all does have to do with this fundamental point that was made in the very first talk, that you choose clocks in such a way that they march in step with that parameter in our fundamental equations governing the fundamental interactions in physics that makes those equations simplest. That's the fundamental notion of what a clock is. But the clock, of course, is more than just a metronome. That clock up on the wall not just ticks regularly, we hope, but it also tells the time. In other words, it has a phase. It's not for nothing that it says 520 rather than 620. But then if we ask ourselves, why does it say 520 at all? 
and we think of, in global terms, and we think of the surface of the Earth, we know, of course, that we spread the phases of time across the surface of the Earth in a very, very complicated and rather awkward way. We have time zones on the surface of the Earth. So let's ask ourselves to start with, what does it mean to spread time through space? And now we're not referring to clocks so much as metronomes, but as objects that carry phase, that pick out a particular time. If you look, for example, at a picture of the time zones spread across the surface of the Earth, you will see, for example, that India, the east of India, is six hours ahead of Greenwich Mean Time. You will also see, for example, that the lines that divide the surface of the Earth into different time zones do not always coincide with lines of longitude. In fact, they can be very complicated. They can run up through a country and take in various zones in a very, very crooked way. If you've ever had the luck and opportunity of visiting New Zealand or Australia, and you fly from New Zealand to Australia to either South America or North America, you arrive before you left. Is this a case of time travel? I've done it myself several times, both to South America and North America from New Zealand, and I can assure you that my head didn't explode, nor did I turn into a pumpkin. But I was time traveling. I got there before I left. Now, of course, you're going to say, quite, quite rightly, that this is merely a convention. We spread time through space, we spread time across the surface of the Earth in a way that maximizes convenience of one sort or another. And in particular, I mentioned United Kingdom, say, in India. If it's midday in the United Kingdom, it's going to be six hours later in India, and you don't want to give both places the time of 12 o'clock. You wouldn't go to jail if you did it. You wouldn't violate some fundamental norm of causality it just wouldn't be very natural. We spread time across space in a way that basically suits us. The reasons are more or less conventional, but there are often good reasons for doing what we do. And also, the fact that we cross the international date line, for example, when we go from Australasia to, to the Americas, well, that's just an artifact of this convention about the way we spread time through space, and are we really traveling backwards in time? Well, obviously our intuition is not. And then we have to ask ourselves, okay, then let's, what is the fundamental relationship? Suppose we take an event now in Britain and we ask what is the corresponding simultaneous event in India? Well, what is it? How do we establish relations of distance simultaneity across space, across distant events. So that's the question I, I want to raise. So the question that I'm asking at the moment is, what is the true simultaneity behind the convention? Ah. Well, you might say, well, this is simply an empirical question. Here are two clocks. Let's suppose they're absolutely identical, and that for, the, for the sake of argument, the clocks are, are ideal. So there's something like you know, behind them is some kind of atomic clock system or something like that, the best clocks we have. 
And I can just see that they're synchronized. I mean, I, I can look at them pretty much simultaneously and I can see that they're synchronized. What's the big deal? Then can't we just carry these clocks once we know that they're synchronized and move them up high even further? But you'll notice that the upper clock is a little bit further away from me than the lower clock. Okay, now, physics wouldn't be physics if we didn't try to be exact. And I know that it takes a finite amount of time for light to reach me from each clock. And if the clocks are different distances, the amount of time is going to be different. And I should compensate for that. So the more they look synchronized, when I take into consideration the different distances they have with respect to me, they're not going to be synchronized. But then the question is, suppose I take that into consideration and then I establish what their relationship is and I compensate for that difference of distance, I have assumed that the one-way speed of light from the upper clock is exactly the same as the one-way speed of light from the lower clock into my eyes. How do I justify that? In other words, how do I justify that the one-way speed of light is the same independent of its direction in space? Now, the question that I'm raising is a question that holds for any signal, not just for light. Take any signal at all. How do you measure its one-way speed? So, for example, if, I have, if I'm looking at a car running along the street, how do I measure its one-way speed? Well, I establish two points in the road. I measure the distance between them, and I put synchronized clocks at each end, and I can tell how long it took for the car to go from the beginning to the end of that. But of course, I, I, I needed synchronized clocks. So now we can beginning to see that there's a very, very deep kind of circularity involved here. If I'm going to assume that the one-way speed of light in that direction is the same as in that direction, I have to be able to establish that empirically. In order to establish that empirically, I need the notion of synchronized clocks. And there is no way out of this conundrum. There is simply no way out of the conundrum. You could say, well, I could use other signals, but exactly the same situation arises. It doesn't have to be light. What do physicists do in this case? Well, we saw earlier, let's go back to the question of clocks as metronomes. Now, the point that came out very nicely in Julian Barber's talk was something like this. You can start with an approach to physics with the fact that you know, systems of particles are changing over time. And you can describe this in a way that doesn't introduce, an, at the fundamental level, a metric of time the notion of duration. But you can find a way of para parametrizing. That's to say, you can introduce a variable that changes along with the changes in the configurations of the particles in such a way as to simplify the dynamical description. That's what we mean by duration. And the, the ideal clocks will march in step with that well-chosen parameter that simplifies the physics, the dynamics of those systems. When we're faced with a situation like this, we do exactly the same thing. By the way, ask yourself the question, is duration something out there in the world? Is it something concrete? There's no doubt that it's not trivial that the dynamics of, for example, of configurations of particles is such 
that there is a privileged notion of time. In thermodynamics, for example, in the theory of thermodynamics, there are no clocks. There is no notion of a metric of time. There is no notion of duration. Of course, there's change. And we saw today in Peter Coveney's talk, for example, the second law of thermodynamics that tells you that entropy changes, <coughs> increases monotonically with, with time. It just never, thermodynamics never says how fast. There's no notion of a clock. So the fact that in classical particle mechanics, we end up with a privileged notion of duration is not trivial. Do we have a similar situation here? Is there a privileged notion of simultaneity? Well, one thing that we can measure, without falling back on the notion of synchronized clocks themselves, is the two-way speed of light. In other words, if I send light out in one direction, and by the way, this goes for any signal, not just light, if I send light out in one direction, it hits a mirror and it comes back to me, and I know the distance that the mirror is away from me, I can measure the two-way speed of light without synchronized clocks. I only need one clock. That one clock tells me how long it took for the light to go away and come back again. Question, is the two-way speed of light independent of direction? And the answer is yes. And how do we know that? And we know that because of an experiment, one of the most famous experiments in physics, that's often cited in textbooks for slightly different reasons. This is one of the experiments that led to special relativity, of course, the Michelson-Morley experiment of 1887. But what this experiment is doing, essentially, is showing that the two-way speed of light is the same in every direction. And what happens is you have a source of light, it goes through a semi-silvered mirror, so part of the light is reflected upwards and part of the light is transmitted. Those two beams, so this, in other words, this is acting as a, this semi-silvered mirror is acting as a beam splitter. The two new beams move, move away to e equally spaced mirrors. That the two beams bounce back again, they come back, and part of those two emerging be converging beams are then reflected down onto the eyes of the observer, and you get a standard interference pattern. You can adjust the mirrors in such a way that the, what the observer sees in their, in their telescope is a series of interference fringes, because of the way that these two beams interfere amongst themselves in a wave-like manner. And now the question is, if you mount this thing on a great big stone tablet, which sits on a bath of mercury, and you rotate it very slowly, do you expect to see a shift in the interference fringes? Well, there's, of course, a long historical issue here, which is that if you really believe in the existence of an ether, an electro electromagnetic ether, you're going to predict that if this thing is in motion with respect to the ether, if you rotate the interference device, you'll see a shift in the interference pattern, which was not detected. So this was a sign that there was a certain kind of experiment that you, could, that you could not do, that would not lead to a positive result, that would test for the ether wind running through the laboratory. So this was one of the nails in the coffin of the ether theory, that eventually Einstein simply discarded as superfluous. But really, putting aside all the ether stuff, just considering the experiment in and of itself, this is an experiment that tells you that the two-way speed of light is the same in all directions. What does that have to do with simultaneity? Well, remember, 
we're trying to figure out how to synchronize clocks, distant clocks. We're trying to figure out how to spread time through space. Why don't we make life easy for ourselves and do it in such a way that the one-way speed of light is also isotropic? That's the same, the same in all directions. In other words, I know I can't establish this empirically, but I can stipulate it. If the two-way speed of light is the same in every direction, I'm going to choose my way of spreading time through space in such a way that the one-way speed is also independent of direction. And that's exactly what's now known as the Poincaré-Einstein convention for synchronizing distant clocks. Time is standardly spread through space so that the one-way speed of light is the same in all directions. And the justification for this is the Michelson-Morley experiment plus simplicity. But it's still a convention. And if you decide to choose a different convention, you will not go to jail. But you will make the equations, the fundamental equations, for example, of electrodynamics and optics and all the rest of it, much more complicated. There will be an an asymmetry, an as-isotropy in the equations, which is really just an artifact of the fact that you chose a convention that was not very convenient. Sometimes we, we say the thing slightly wrongly in physics. We say, we synchronize clocks in such a way that the one-way speed of light is isotropic. But if you ever walk into a, a laboratory, a physics laboratory, you will never find physicists running around synchronizing clocks, particularly with laser beams shining with each other and that sort of thing. You just don't do it. What we really mean is, and we come back to this notion of a coordinate system that was mentioned earlier in earlier talks today, we choose our coordinates, our temporal coordinates in the coordinate system, in the space-time coordinate system, in such a way that the one-way speed of light is the same in all directions. It's really a choice of coordinates. It's the way we represent the world. Now, Poincaré's name came up on a number of occasions today. And I just want to pay homage to Poincaré because Poincaré is the first person to realize the intricacy of the implications of this convention for synchronizing clocks, if you like, or spreading time through space that we use in physics. First of all, he was the first to really articulate, as far as I'm aware, of the conventional nature of distance simultaneity. The fact that in a single coordinate system, you have to specify some kind of convention for spreading time through space. And this is not something you can just go out and measure. This was roughly 1900. Even in the case of Newtonian mechanics, and I'll come back in a, in a moment to say a little bit more about Newtonian mechanics. In Newtonian mechanics, we learn right from the beginning that there's such a thing as absolute time. And that means, amongst other things, that there's an absolute simultaneity relation. Is that really the case? Now, the real issue that, that was exercising Professor... Um, Ball this morning, when he referred to simultaneity as being profligate, is the relativity of simultaneity. And let me just say a quick word about that. This is something that, I, that Poincaré understood before Einstein. Suppose I've got two observers in relative motion, and each one is carrying their space-time coordinate systems. 
The first observer uses a coordinate system with temporal coordinates that satisfy this Einstein-Poincaré convention. Therefore, within that coordinate system, the one-way speed of light is the same in all directions. It satisfies the Poincaré-Einstein convention. What happens if the moving observer also uses the same convention? Now, this makes sense if the speed of light is independent of the speed of the source. I won't go into the details, but it's not a really a very natural thing to do unless the speed of light is independent of the speed of the source. And that is the fundamental ether postulate. It's what you would expect if light is, is wavy. The speed of light is independent of the speed of the source, in exactly the same way that the speed of sound and air is independent of the speed of the emitter. If that's the case with light, and everyone in the land of the 19th century believed this with one or two famous exceptions like Ritz, then it makes sense for both observers in relative motion to use the same convention. And the minute you do that, without assuming anything else from relativity theory, from Einstein's theory, or anything else, you immediately show that the two observers will disagree about whether two distant events are simultaneous. I'll just repeat that. If both observers use the Einstein-Poincaré convention for synchronizing distant clocks, they will disagree about whether two arbitrarily chosen distant events are simultaneous or not. That's a mere, that's a straightforward consequence of having chosen this convention for synchronizing clocks. The convention seems natural. It seems simple given the fact that the two-way speed of light is isotropic. Now, we'll see in a moment an equation that encompasses the relativity of simultaneity. This goes back to Lorentz. This equation goes back to Lorentz. Lorentz did not understand the terms in the equation. He had the relativity of simultaneity mathematically. He did not understand it physically. Poincaré did. Well, there's also another interesting story about the fact that he, Poincaré anticipated Einstein's relativity principle and almost all of the equations of Einstein's special theory of relativity. And if you're on the other side of the channel, you're very tempted to think that Poincaré really was the father of relativity. Why wasn't he? That's another story. Let's just step back a little bit and talk about Newton. Again, this is I'm just spelling out something that was already pretty much apparent to Poincaré. We think in, in Newtonian mechanics of there being an absolute time, there's an absolute simultaneity relation between events, and things evolve according to this absolute time. But you remember, the first law of Newton, something that Julian Barber mentioned today, the law of inertia, is the claim that you can find coordinate systems, these very, very special coordinate systems called inertial systems, relative to which force-free bodies, bodies that are not being acted upon by Newtonian forces, force-free bodies, move in straight lines at uniform speeds. This is an extraordinary conspiracy on the part of nature that you can find such coordinate systems. Because remember, these particles are not talking to each other. They're not influencing each other. They're oblivious to each other because they're force-free. Now, of course, if we lived in such a world, it wouldn't be very interesting of course, we're interested in the case where forces exist between the particles, and of course, the ultimate Newtonian force is gravity, the inverse square force. Let's ask ourselves to start with, 
what would time look like if we could turn the forces off? So we just start with Newton's first law. What would time look like? And it turns out that because of the nature of that equation, x double dot is equal to zero, or in other words, for a force-free body with respect to these special coordinate systems, the acceleration is zero, it turns out there's no privileged notion of simultaneity. You could take a coordinate system which specifies how to spread time through space. You could tilt the simultaneity planes to give you a completely different simultaneity relation as long as that coordinate transformation is linear and you'd get exactly the same equation out. The acceleration would be zero. So until you turn the forces on, there's no privileged notion of simultaneity. There's no notion of simultaneity, effectively. It's too weak. It's not something that's structurally captured by just the law of inertia. You have to turn the forces on. Well, what about the gravitational force? The gravitational force is an action at a distance. So a body here, according to Newton, affects a distant body. How do you know that it's instantaneous? How do you know, for example, well, one thing that you do know is because it's a mutual force, if, if you jiggle this body, it'll have an effect on that body, and if that body jiggles as a result, it'll have an effect back on you. And you know that the total time that it takes to go out and back is zero. That thing you can establish without using synchronized clocks. But how do you know what time it took for, the system, for, the, for this influence to go out to that body? You've got two options. Either it's instantaneous, which means that the effect of gravity in that direction is the same as the effect of gravity in that direction, or not. If it's not, it means that when you jiggle something here, it travels backwards in time to the other particle, and then the other particle sends a message forwards in time, such that the two intervals cancel. Now, the metaphysicists amongst you might be tempted to say, but I mean, that second option is crazy. It violates the canons of causality. It is no different from my flying from New Zealand to Los Angeles, ending up before, there before I, I left. It's no different. It's just you've chosen an inconvenient coordinate system. You've chosen an inconvenient way of spreading time through space. You will not go to jail. And your head won't explode. So why do we choose the, the, the simultaneity relation that we do in Newtonian mechanics? Because it makes the gravitational interaction the same in both directions, which means that it's instantaneous. So it's because we turn forces on in Newtonian mechanics that we get a notion of simultaneity. And there's a natural way of spreading time through space. And this is really something that Poincaré was aware of. And it turns out also in, in Newtonian mechanics that when you take two clocks that you can locally synchronize and then you move them apart, this is called slow clock transport, they're going to stay synchronized. In other words, they'll stay compatible with that convention that you've chosen to make gravity instantaneous in all directions. So when you see films, for example, of the gangsters, the bank robbers, all getting together before the, the heist and synchronizing their clocks and then going off and doing their coordinated activities inside the bank, that's thanks to Newtonian mechanics. In special relativity, that would not work. 
Well, I, I said at the end there are no convincing grounds in Newtonian physics for the notion of the flow of time, but that's really a red herring. So coming back to Einstein, well, in 1905, Einstein derived these famous equations, which we saw in the first talk today. And this thing here, the second term, the time, that's the relativity of simultaneity term. The term that already appeared in the Lorentz. These are the so-called Lorentz transformations, and of course, Lorentz, the great ether theorist, had them before Einstein, but didn't understand the significance of that term until, um, until Poincaré pointed it out to him. I'm not sure that he ever understood it before Einstein. But at any rate, what this is saying is that built into these equations is this convention for synchronizing clocks, according to the Einstein-Poincaré convention, that makes the one-way speed of light isotropic the same in all directions. And what, this is, what that term is saying is that if you take two distant events, the two observers, these are the coordinates, the primed and the unprimed coordinates associated with two relatively moving observers, they will not agree as to whether those two events are simultaneous. If they're simultaneous for one observer, they won't be for the other. Now, a historical remark. Einstein had a very, very simple, very simple way of deriving these equations, which he later rejected. But in 1905, he had a very, very simple way of deriving those equations. And we we're pretty sure that when he derived them, they contain these remarkable, these remarkable phenomena, not just the relativity of simultaneity, but what these equations tell you is that rigid bodies, when you push them into motion, are going to shrink, and that clocks, when you put them into motion, are going to dilate. They're not going to read the same time as stationary clocks. That in other words, they're metronomic, um, their metronomic abilities will change. <clears throat> Both of these phenomena were already known before Einstein, to some extent. But Einstein had a wonderful way of packaging all of these all of these processes together in his derivation of the Lorentz transformations. But he was held up from publishing his paper because he could not understand the relativity of simultaneity. He could not understand that. How can it be that two events that are simultaneous for you are not simultaneous for me just because we're in relative motion with respect to each other? I mean, obviously, we don't see this in day-to-day -day life because the relative motion involved would have to be close to the speed of light in order for that term to become significant. How can this be? And it's almost, it's pretty clear, I don't think it's been established 100%, but it's pretty clear historically the moment of breakthrough occurred when Einstein found out about Poincaré's work, just before he published his paper. And what Poincaré's point was, was basically this. Let's go back to a single observer. The single observer has to ask him or herself, how do I spread time through space? How do I set up my coordinate system? I have to use a convention. Because you can't measure the one-way speeds of anything without synchronized clocks, and you're back to the circul circularity. I have to use a convention. Now, one way of saying that it's a convention is that there's no fact of the matter about what the right answer is. Isn't it? If there's no fact of the matter about what simultaneity means for a single observer, 
Why should it matter if two co-moving, relatively moving observers choosing the same convention get different answers? You see the point? To understand how relativity can be, can, how simul simultaneity can be relative, you have to understand that simultaneity in the first place for a single observer is a convention. That's not to say that it's not natural to choose the einstein poincare convention, but it is a convention. It's just like going back to the question of clocks as metronomes. In understanding the, the, the dynamics of the of part interacting particles in Newtonian mechanics, you could use a time parameter that didn't coincide with the one that Julian Barber introduced in his paper. You could do it. It would just make the equations look very complicated. So, just an historical point, the last, the last brick in the edifice, as it were, the last conceptual brick in the edifice that Einstein needed was an understanding of simultaneity that allowed him to make sense of the relativity of simultaneity. And it was the realization as a result of probably of reading Poincaré's work or being told about Poincaré's work that simultaneity itself, quite independently of agreements or, or disagreements amongst relatively moving observers, simultaneity itself is a convention. You have to adopt a convention. You can't go out and just measure it directly. Given that it's a convention, if two observers in relative motion use that convention, it no longer looks so mysterious that they may end up disagreeing about what's simultaneous. I was going to say something about time dilation, but I think I'd rather end up with Einstein again about the the division between past, present, and future. I think I mentioned before, you'll remember that Peter Coveney regarded this claim, Einstein's claim, as resting on the fact that the fundamental laws of physics, putting the question of the weak interactions in particle physics aside, the weak nuclear interactions, that the laws of physics take the same form whether you take time going that way or that way. They don't pick out an hour of time. They don't pick out a direction of time. But the same can be said of Newtonian mechanics. That's to say, Newtonian mechanics is also time reversal, so just as quantum mechanics. I think Einstein here was probably referring to something else. I think Einstein was here was really probably referring to the fact that simultaneity is a, is a tricky, slippery notion. When we talk about the difference between the past and the future, we're not just talking about what's happening here and now. We're talking about the present throughout space. After all, we don't always sit in the same place. We move around. But we still want to have a notion of the present that distinguishes now from the past and the future. But even for an individual observer, what it is that establishes the simultaneity relation is tricky and involves essentially adopting a convention. If it turned out that everybody should, ad should adopt the simplest convention and that all, observers, that all observers would agree on what's simultaneous or not, then up to a certain point you would say, well, there's a kind of a consensus we can reach as to what it means to say the state of the universe at an instant. But in special relativity you can't do that. I think even in classical mechanics it's a dubious notion. But in special relativity, it's even more dubious. Because in special relativity, if, for example, if I say, well, 
I'm now going to distinguish between the past, the present, and the future. I have to define the present, and I mean the present across the world. And then suddenly, another person is walking past me, even at just walking, you know, walking pace. We're going to disagree violently about what's happening simultaneously on some distant star. Because you see that term that we saw before, the Vx over c squared, depends on distance just as much as velocity. So once the distances become very, very, very large, even though the difference in velocity is small, that term becomes very, very, very big. Who's right? Ah, well, there the relativity principle comes in, which is the basis of Newtonian mechanics and special relativity. You're both right. Because if one of you was right and the other one was wrong, you'd violate the relativity principle, essentially. So there is no way, there's no natural way in special relativity of saying what the present is, apart from exactly where you are now. If you talk about the present being spread out across space, there's no consensus as to what it is. And so how do you make a distinction between past, present, and future? In a sense, all events are just out there. Every event that took place is, is happening presently and in the future. They're just there. This is what philosophers call the block universe. And the distinction between past, future, and present is really a kind of an artifact. And I think that's really what, what Einstein had in mind. Now, just a, a word about, perhaps I could make, I could finish with a remark about an attempt to salvage absolute simultaneity. There are people in the world, there are physicists who hold conferences every year who claim that the ether, for example, the, the, the ether still exists despite Einstein's rejection of it. There really is a privileged coordinate system despite the relativity principle. It's just that you don't see it directly. And with respect to that privileged coordinate system, there's a, there's a privileged simultaneity relation. So there really is an absolute simultaneity, you just can't see it. And this smacks a little bit of a conspiracy theory, rather in the way that, for example, hidden variable theories in quantum mechanics that posit hidden things smack of a conspiracy. Why would God introduce these things and then hide them? Or it smacks a little bit of Newton's absolute space in Newtonian mechanics, which nowadays we can do without. We can do all of Newtonian mechanics with ever, without ever appealing to the notion of absolute space. But I just wanted to make a remark about, about Julian's work, because I don't think Julian's work can be dismissed as lightly. And the reason is this. If you're trying to do dynamics by way of thinking of, as Julian said, something like a geodesic principle in a configuration space, the, the statement that you have a configuration of particles is appealing to a notion of simultaneity. So there had better be a privileged notion of simultaneity if you're going to do Machian dynamics. If the world were strictly special relativistic, I think the theory would end up looking very much like a hidden variable theory. That's to say there would be a structure in the world that's, at, as it were, picked out in a privileged way by the dynamics that in fact you don't see because you could have chosen a different simultaneity relation 
because of the relativity of simultaneity and everything would look exactly the same. But you see, now gravity comes in. Einstein's general theory of relativity, the, the theory that, took, that he developed 10 years after special relativity. And here, things become very, very different. Because here the dynamics, is not the dynamics of the configurations of particles, it's the dynamics, well, sometimes it's said of space-time itself, the so-called metric field of space-time. Okay? Now, there, the dynamics, so-called Einstein's field equations, and looked at from a Machian point of view, again, pick out a privileged, a privileged notion of, of simultaneity, why is that not inconsistent? Why is that not uh, um, a kind of a conspiracy in the way that it would be in special relativity? Because general relativity is not special relativity. Special relativity is the limiting case of general relativity when you look at very small regions of space-time, where you can ignore the curvature of space-time. I'm talking loosely, but this is the way it's often said in physics. Within those very, very small local regions of space-time, their smallness is, is defined to be such that you don't see the curvature of space-time, just as, for example, we're now sitting in a, in, a, in a part of the surface of the Earth where we don't see the curvature of the Earth because this room is too small, but gravity is the curvature of space-time. So by restricting ourselves to these very local regions and looking at the physics of these local regions, we're missing the big picture. The big picture is about the evolving nature of the curvature of space. You can have a Machian dynamics of this, and I don't see any reason from the point of view of special relativity why that should not pick out a privileged notion of simultaneity. I'll leave it at that. Thank you.